This is the Endurance Church Podcast with Pastor Anthony Bass. At Endurance Church, our goal is to live well and finish strong by becoming faithful disciples of Christ. We do this through loving, disciplined, Bible-based teaching, encouragement, and care. For more information about our ministry, head to endurancechurch.org. And now, today's message. Napoleon entered Paris in triumph and had his last little um, blaze of glory, what's called the, the, the Hundred Days. The Hundred Days began then. And he rapidly sought to reconquer everything that he had been taken away from him um, at, at this point. During this time, the, the, there was this huge council meeting in Vienna. Uh, and, and they're actually meeting while the Hundred Days are going on. And they're con- confident they're going to be able to defeat him, which they do. He's defeated, and he decides to go to war against, again, this coalition of Great Britain, Russia, Prussia, Austria, in Belgium. And uh, he loses at the famous battle there of Waterloo on June 18th, uh, beaten by the Duke of Wellington, uh, who's in charge of the British Army there. And he's now exiled further away to this uh, even smaller little rock, the island of St. Helena, in the South Atlantic, where he remains, and he, uh, and he dies uh, six years later in 1821. He said something very interesting, by the way, about our Lord uh, in his final exile that was written down. Some people have argued this is not authentic. Other historians say he did say this. And it shows that even though he was a rationalist and, a, and at the very least a deist, all people say of him, some say an atheist, that somehow in his misery of his final years, he had a lot of time to reflect and meditate. And some of the Catholic training that he'd been given as a little boy seems to have perhaps somewhat awakened in his mind. But this is what he said. He said, quote, I know men, and I tell you, Jesus is not a man. He doesn't mean not a man at all, but not a mere man. He commands us to believe and gives us no other reason than his awful word, I am God. Philosophers try to solve the mysteries of the universe by their empty dissertations. They are fools. They are like the infant that cries to have the moon for a plaything. Christ never hesitates. He speaks with authority. His religion is a mystery, but it subsists by its own force. He seeks and absolutely requires the love of men, the most difficult thing in the world to obtain. Alexander, Caesar, Hannibal conquered the world but had no friends. I myself am perhaps the only person of my day who loves Alexander, Caesar, Hannibal. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself founded empires, but upon what? Upon force. Jesus founded his empire on love, and at this hour millions would die for him. I myself have inspired multitudes with such affection that they would die for me, but my presence was necessary. Now that I am in St. Helena, where are my friends? I am forgotten, soon to return to the earth and become food for worms. What an abyss exists between my misery and the eternal kingdom of Christ, who is proclaimed, loved, adored, and which is extending over all the earth. Is this death? I tell you the death of Christ is the death of a God. I tell you Jesus Christ is God. Um, I don't know if you ever heard about that uh, before, but um, consider that, that a man as powerful as Napoleon would, in his own understanding, come to the realization that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. Think about that. Napoleon, who basically almost conquered the world, had this understanding himself regarding the nature of Jesus Christ. 
The reason why that's so amazing, because I've seen great leaders throughout my life. I've seen some good ones. Um, I had the fortune, um, opportunity, experience of playing for the Vikings, and I, maybe not you all, uh, I loved Dennis Green as a leader. You may not like him as a coach, but he was a great leader. And he was able to galvanize men to do stuff they did not want to do. Because I played sports in my life, I saw a lot of coaches. And I've got yelled at, as John Darius was saying earlier. I've been fussed at on national TV in front of everybody. <laughs> and I know sometimes it's hard to get people to get motivated to do things they don't want to do. I mean, think about it. He said there in his little prose there, it was like he could be a force, get people to do what he wanted to do. He had to be there, threaten them. But Jesus Christ, to this day, just, just think about him as a man. If you say, well, I'm struggling with him being God, just hold up on that thought for a moment. A man is able to get us all to come together today. A man. And he didn't coerce us. He never threatened us. He didn't pull out any guns. He said, love me. And because we love him, hopefully we've come here today. A little man named Jesus Christ is galvanizing this planet even this day. He had no marketing strategy. He didn't depend upon the latest fads or fashions in order to reach human hearts. But he is and has changed them. Jesus Christ has this power over people. He, he puts us in a situation where we are like, okay, there's a, there's a choice now I have, which we didn't have before. When we seem sometimes get into this hopeless situation, sometimes it seems like we have no choice. Jesus gives us a choice, an option. I, I like looking at generals of the past, whether it be Leonidas or whether it be Patton or MacArthur, even Rommel. Don't hate me. I'm just trying to say I like good leaders. Nevertheless, all these leaders had to use means of coercion in order to get people to respond. Now, you may say, well, look at Truett Cathy. He was paying a man. Truett had money. He's paying people. You could even talk about Trump. You could talk about Obama. You could talk about any leader you want. How do they get their followers to be motivated? Now, the problem is, as Napoleon was talking, if you get to that level of life where you happen to be a king or a president or a governor, you begin to see the problem with humanity. Even if, even if, you don't believe in original sin. Even if you don't believe humans are jaded, you still have to deal with the issue of death. But, but just, just bear with me for a moment. When you have a little kid, you notice very early that they, they tend to not do right things all the time, right? I'm trying to be euphoric there. Like, you have to teach your kids how to do the right thing. You don't have to teach your kids to do the wrong thing, right? Now, magnify that by a kingdom. Imagine you're a king, you're trying to get people to do the right thing. Imagine what you have to start doing and thinking and strategizing to get your people to respond appropriately to every situation. You can think about Nebuchadnezzar, Xerxes. You can think about Darius. What did they have to do to get their followers to respond? That's the beautiful thing about Christ. Christ is our king. And our king died for us. He died for us, literally. He showed us his nature. We were in Bible study this Saturday. We had this point we were talking about. 
One of Jesus Christ's titles is this. He is the slain lamb before the foundation of the earth. Now, why is that so important? Let's think about this for a moment. If Jesus Christ's name, one of his names is the slain lamb before the earth was created. So he, 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 he had this title before the earth was created. So this preceded his name, our existence. So you have to think if this preceded our existence, this influenced our existence. Jesus Christ being the slain lamb before the foundation of the earth is fundamental to our reality. Why? Because that's the reason why we're here. We know God is love because of the cross. That's how you know the nature of God. God is love because God died for you. So if you ever want to know who God is or his nature, he's showing you on the cross. Are you afraid of God? Do you think he's bad or disloyal or evil or jaded or shady? Like the cross should nullify all those negative things you have to think or say about God. And Jesus Christ was that before the earth was created. So the fundamental nature of God is love. And this life is about one thing. Do you love him? Do you believe he loves you? Because that's why he died. He died to show you his nature. When you think about God, he wants you to think about the cross. Because he's like, I am this. I'll die for you. I'll, I'll take punishment for you. I'll take torture for you. I'll do it for you so that in all eternity future, you'll never have to worry about my character, my nature. I know today at times it's hard. You face disappointment and heartache. When you're let down, you're like, God, why did you let this happen? But he's right there with you. He doesn't give you all the answers to life. He just shows you who he is. That's what he did to Job. That's what he's doing for us. Remember Jesus Christ in the garden in Gethsemane prayed, Lord, let this cup pass me. If there's any other way. He was crying and sweating blood. And God said, no. At that moment, Jesus Christ made the decision we all have to make. Will you remain faithful until the end? Because he did. We look back at Napoleon. He's a king. And God in this universe has designed it such a way that he is revealing himself consistently. He revealed himself on the cross. Do you know now that scientists are considering storing information in our DNA? Who has heard that before? Do you know that? Now, there is more capacity to store data in our DNA. This is real. I'm not even like remotely making this up. In our DNA than it is in any computer we could create. The capacity is almost infinite there. And people still think we are accidents. That we're here by chance. Yet we're storing data in our calf muscle. The evidence is there. We are becoming more knowledgeable about God's handprint, his fingerprint, his influence on our reality. But the problem is people aren't running to him. I believe that's because people still distrust who he is. 
My hope today is you remember that video we played about Napoleon. Napoleon came to realization that Jesus Christ is God. Not based upon God loving him, but based upon his experience of trying to lead men. God is revealing himself today more than he has ever done before. Jump into the scripture and we'll go forward. Father God, thank you for the brief time I have. Thank you for this church. Thank you for your people. I pray you get glory this morning. Amen. I'm sorry I'm dressed down this morning. I know normally on Easter Sunday you're supposed to dress up, but I received a gift from a, a close friend of mine, a family of mine, and I wanted to wear it, so I just wore a match, so I apologize. But next week, well, I don't know. Who knows what I wear? I don't know, you know, because I can't tell. It just depends how I feel that morning. I'm just like, um, I'm with the wind. I'm double-minded when it comes to me dressing. <laughs> so I'm double-minded. Oh, pray for me. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, a great apologist, has this quote that I really like today. I think it's apropos for our sermon. He said, we have not to crown the exceptional man who knows he can rule. Rather, we must crown the much more exceptional man who knows he can't. And to me, this is how I look at leadership. There's something fundamental about leadership that really the one who rules is the one who serves. The one who rules well is the one who serves. I believe everybody wants to rule. Everybody wants power. Whether we want it or acknowledge it or not, I think everybody likes power. Who, who likes to be in control of their life? Raise your hand. No, put it down. I was joking. Who doesn't? Who, who does? Who? Who really just doesn't want to be in control of their life? I mean, I don't know anybody who just doesn't care. Just case hurrah, hurrah. I mean, easy to say that, but can you really live that out? I don't know one person who doesn't want to be in control of their life. Now, I just think it's human nature to be in control. But the problem is God asks us for control of our own lives. God wants that. He, he deserves that, does he not? But we wrestle with giving God control because we don't trust him. And that's why today's, hopefully, topic is so important. When we look at Jesus Christ, we have to ask ourselves, is he worthy to have control of our life? Is he worthy? And you look at the cross and you say, well, yeah, if that's real. If the cross is real, if you could verify that in history, then you have just in your mind, hopefully, come to the conclusion that he is worthy of everything you have. Because of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, because of the cross, we have an eternal future. But God has laid in the sense these kind of breadcrumbs throughout history so that we can understand he really, really existed. And Jesus Christ really is who he says he is. If you open your Bible to Isaiah chapter 52, we're going to start at verse 13 and 14. And I'm going to show you how cool God is, in my opinion. Now, Isaiah chapter 53 is the scripture that is in the Old Testament. It's in the Quran. And it's even in the Christian Bible. This is why I like this, right? Now, there are a sect of Jewish people, even today, years ago, that took Isaiah 53 out of the Bible. And you know why they took it out of the Bible? Because it talks specifically about what? The cross. Isaiah 53 talks explicitly about the cross of Jesus Christ. So, as a result, they took it out of their Bibles. So if you find certain Jewish Bibles, Old Testament Bibles, it is not in there. You could turn to Isaiah chapter 52, and it, it goes like to 54 or maybe 53, but it, it's not chapter 53 that's in all the other Bibles that exist. But this is what's interesting. At the end of chapter 52, starting in verse 13 and 14, most people today believe that this should have been added to Isaiah 53. 
But whoever numbered it mistakenly left it out. The reason why this is important is because Isaiah chapter 52, verses 13 through 14, basically talks about the cross. So even though they took Isaiah chapter 53 out, Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 to 14, also explicitly talks about the cross. And let's look at it. Here now is from the book of Isaiah, which is written 700 years before the cross of Christ. During this time, Israel is in captivity, and they are crushed because they're like, how did God let this happen to us? Israel doesn't know they've been sinning. They're being punished for their sins. But even in the midst of their punishment, God is talking and speaking hope. And that's the beautiful thing about God because we are going to blow it. But even in our mistakes, there's still this opportunity of redemption and salvation. Even though we make mistakes, we still are asked to run to God. When Israel's in captivity, they are like, what is going on? And Isaiah is talking to them about this future hope they're going to have if they continue to remain faithful to God. I know this was a big issue in my life before I really got serious about serving Jesus Christ. Every time I got disappointed, every time I sinned, every time I made a mistake, you know what I did? I ran from God. If things didn't go my way, I'd be like, forget that. I'm not, not only am I going to worship God, but I'm running to sin. And that was my habit. I blow it, I run to sin. I blow it, I run to sin. Eventually I realized these issues I was, I was having consistently weren't necessarily opportunities for me to just give up on God. They were opportunities for me to grow closer to God. Usually when you see God's promises is right after judgment. God's like, you're going to get spanked with the fire belt. It'll be okay. It doesn't matter how big the paddle he's going to use to spank you with. After the spanking, you're going to be a better person. There's these rewards and riches that come after the spanking. Now, we live in a culture today that we don't all agree on being spanked. Hey, this is in the Bible. God chastises those that he loves. And if God chastises you, it's because he's trying to get you to go in a different direction. Israel here has strayed from God. They got caught up in idolatry. They didn't know if God was moving or was another God, a false God. So they began to worship all these other gods in order to get God to do what they wanted. They had a God for food. They had a God for sex. They had a God for the harvest. They had a God for war. And they still had their God. They were idolatrous. And now they were so caught up in the reality of their sin that God sent them to exile. And while they're in exile, Isaiah begins to prophesy. And he's speaking about judgment, but then in chapter 40, he starts, 41, he starts talking about this glorious future that's coming. And here in 52, verses 13 and 14, it says this, Behold, my servant will prosper. Now, we all know who this servant is, hopefully. It's the Messiah. It's the guy prophesied from Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, all throughout the Bible. Jesus And he's also known as the suffering servant. All of history is pointing toward this one man, Jesus Christ. Now, when Israel hears this, they're thinking what? He's coming to save the day, to free us. Now, that's what Jesus' disciples thought in his time. They thought Jesus was the Messiah, so therefore now Israel will rise up and overcome all Roman oppression, and Israel will be the center of the earth once again. That's what they thought. But there was another plan that God had. And this was an indication. 
This here was a breadcrumb to that fact. In the midst of all these other scriptures talk about Israel rising up and the Messiah coming and the Messiah freeing them, this point came. My servant will prosper. The Holy Spirit is saying 700 years before Christ comes, Jesus will be successful. Now listen to this. He will be high lifted up and greatly exalted. My question to you is, when you think about the life of Jesus Christ, do you think he was successful? I mean, he, he, didn't he galvanize the entire planet while he was here? I mean, didn't he change the whole earth while he was here? Didn't millions and millions of people follow him? Didn't that happen? No. It's, oh, it didn't happen, did it? Wait a minute. Didn't all of Israel believe in everything he said? Didn't all of Israel come in, into power when Jesus was here? No. Just me being awkward right now. Okay, it didn't happen. As a matter of fact, he only had like 12 real dudes who followed him. And of the 12 dudes, one of the dudes betrayed him. I mean, what, that's 90, what, 92%, right? I mean, is that good statistics? Did he have a mega church? Was he rolling around in the bins, a BMW, anybody, a, a horse? Did he, was he, no, he was walking around? What, didn't he have nice clothes? I mean, was he, was he like, was he the man? I mean, no, none of that. Okay. But here the scripture says he'll be successful, he'll be prosperous, and he'll be high and lifted up. He was successful. He was lifted up. But how was he lifted up? On the cross. He was successful because he obeyed God until the very end. Remember, the point of contention for Christ was when he was in the garden. He was like, God, I don't want to do this. God was like, you got to do it. And he said, not my will, but your will be done. At that moment, Jesus Christ was successful. See, we have to rethink what success is. When I grew up, success was really about you being faster, smarter, stronger. It was, it was about you being cuter, handsomer, <laughs> about you talking faster, nice car, nice clothes. Have the nice girlfriend, the boyfriend. Am I there? Anybody? No, just me? Okay. I'm just trying to say. And then you get, you get married and you got the most kids. Maybe that's not what we do anymore. Maybe the least amount of kids. <laughs> I don't even know where we are anymore with that, right? You got the biggest bank account. Like, isn't that success in the world? But in God's kingdom, that's not success. Success in God's kingdom is obedience. And whether you're 2 or 42, 82, whether you have autism, MS, or you're a physical freak like LeBron James, everybody can trust and obey God or not. God has leveled the playing field, and we have to take notice. He's left breadcrumbs to show us he's in control. My servant will prosper and be lifted up and greatly exalted. He goes on to 14, says, just as many were astonished at you, my people. Stop right there. Remember, they're in captivity at this particular time. I'm reading about the, my Messiah coming. He's going to be high and lifted. I'm reading. I'm like, yeah, I can't wait till this day comes because I'm going to be like, yeah. Well, remember, the disciples were arguing. Who's going to be the greatest in your kingdom? Remember, they were arguing. I'm going to be the man. No, you're going to be the man. Oh, I'm going to be the man. They were arguing as Jesus was instituting the, the Passover. He was talking about him dying, and they're talking about who's the greatest because they got the thought wrong. And they're like, reading this, 
just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Hold up. I'm reading this. I'm getting hope. I'm getting encouragement. Oh, yes, the Messiah is the man. I'm, I want to be right with him. And, and he says, yeah, just as uh, many were astonished at you, Israel. He's like, yeah, yeah. Just like people were astonished. But he's like, wait, so his appearance was marred? Now, the context means this. Just as you, Israel, were judged, overthrown by the nations, and sit into captivity. And people were astonished by how God spanked you. So the same will happen to this servant. Who will be being worse than any man that had ever lived. He was, Jesus was beaten so bad. It says his appearance was marred more than any man. And his form more than the sons of men. Jesus Paid a horrific price. He was abused. He was tortured. And it's saying here, this is how the Messiah will be treated when he comes. If you're a Jewish person at the time, like, wait a minute, I don't like this scripture. That's how we do it today. I don't like that scripture. We don't read the ones we don't like because they make us stressed. I'm just going to go to the ones that make me feel good. They will leave that scripture alone. Here, they got to deal with it. They're like, what's happening? Where's the hope? Here's the hope. Thus, he will sprinkle many nations. Now, that word sprinkling is a Levitical word, a priestly word. And in the Old Testament, once the Day of Atonement came and the sacrifice were made, the, the priests would bring the blood of the sacrificial lamb into the Holy of Holies, and they would sprinkle the blood on the tent, on the altar, all around, cleansing those people who were defied, Israel, from their sins, from the effects of sins. Here, it's saying the Messiah was beaten so bad, and now his beating will result in many nations being cleansed. Now, think about this. I'm a Jewish person at the time I'm reading this. That's not what I want to hear. I don't want to hear that the nations are going to be sprinkled clean. I want them judged. Look at what they did to us. This ain't good news. This is not what I want to hear. I want to hear their, their of revenge and justice. But God's talking about they're going to be cleansed. Dang, my God. I don't think that's right. Let's skip over this verse. It ain't what I want to hear. God has to be saying something different. But hold up. Look at this part. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. Kings is plural. God's leaving breadcrumbs. He goes on to say, for what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. So what is it saying here? It's saying because of this suffering servant, because he's beaten and crushed, kings will understand his nature and his message. Now, I'm not a king. I've been a leader of a couple of people before. And I'm sure you all have been leaders of people as well. But what this is saying here is kings will understand the power of Jesus Christ. Because they'll see the whole context. This little man, and I mean little, from Israel, would gain 
people's affections and loyalty, even thousands of years after his death. And they'll know by proximity of their role, this guy is amazing. This man is more than a man. This guy is God. Remember when Paul went out preaching, he was trying to go to kings first and foremost. He went to Agrippa, right? And when he could have been freed, he said he appealed to who? Caesar. Because Paul knew that kings would understand the message of Jesus Christ. Because no king in their right mind would die for a servant. No king would do that. Why would a king do that? But now if you start thinking about it, wait a minute. If I died for my people, then that would make them loyal, faithful. They'd be committed. The only problem if you die for your people is what? You're dead. You can't do anything with it. Like you got all that relational change in your pocket, but you can't get it out because you're in the grave. But Jesus Christ died and was resurrected. And he still got the relational change in his pocket. Got a couple of points we're done for the day. The successful ministry of Christ would make him famous, even though, like I said, he never really went anywhere outside of his hometown. Yet his success would come at a great personal cost to him. Jesus Christ paid the ultimate price for being faithful to God. Nevertheless, those in authority would understand why. I believe every president has this principle somehow presented to them. Isn't it interesting every time somebody becomes president after eight years, they look different? Have you all seen the pictures of presidents? It's like when they get there, they're like, they look all young and happy, and they leave, they're all like old and sad, right? Gray hair. I can make a lot of jokes at this point, but I'm not going to go there right now. I'm just trying to say it's a fact. Is, is it a stress? Who knows? But the reality of it is when you're faced with life and death choices of other people, moment by moment by moment. Imagine Jesus right now is thinking about you. But he's not stressing. He's like, I hope they hear my message. I hope they respond. I, I hope they fall in love with me. Now, if, if it wasn't Jesus, if it was a president, what would a president have to do to gain your trust and loyalty? What would he, a president do? I mean, we, he could use the I'm not going to go there. He used a lot of means to try to get you to be more faithful and loyal to him. Political means, maybe. But Jesus is like, I gave them my best. Now you have a choice. Jesus is up there hoping you respond. That you'll realize he loves you. He paid the ultimate price, the best price to get your affinity. He is trying to win your heart. That's why he died. So that you could trust him. Our presidents now can't die like that. Obviously, they'll be dead. Jesus Christ could die and be resurrected. And now you know he'll do anything for you. He'll do anything. He'll even die for you. Next point. Christ's ministry was designed to bring understanding to the plight of humanity. Kings understand this. Humanity is jaded. At one time in history, there was a term called behavioral science that basically said that what? Environment determines how people are, not necessarily their character, but just the environment. You put them in a good environment, they're going to be good. You put them in a bad environment, they're going to be bad. But biblical 
Context shows us something a little different. We all know environment does influence people. I'm not saying that. That's true. I'm from West Virginia because I'm West Virginia. I'm country, and I have an accent like this. And this is my normal accent. And when I talk like this, people look at me and stare and say, why are you talking like that, Brother Bass? Because that's my normal talking way. That's, you know, Randy Moss and I are from the same place. This is how I talk. And I worked really hard to get rid of that accent so you could look at me without saying, dang, that dude is country. <laughs> Your environment influences you. But the influence we're talking about here is the human heart. We don't like to be told what to do. Can I get a witness in here? Don't tell me what to do. Who do you think you are? I'm your wife. That's right. You are my wife. <laughs> you can tell what to do right now. I'm going to come back and I'll be frustrated. I'm going to do it again. What do you say? Right? We don't pa- I can't tell anybody what to do. That's why people leave the church. Because I told somebody what to do. They're, oh, I'm gone. He's telling me what to do. I'm going to another church. <laughs> Preach it. People don't like presents. Don't tell me what to do, Mr. President. You don't owe me. We don't like authority. We don't want people to tell us what to do. That's called sin. Just throwing that out there. We're rebellious. We root for the rebellion. We like Star Wars. We're rooting for the wrong people. <laughs> We're rooting for the rebels. Rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft. Oh, rebellion. We hate order. We don't want to be under anybody. We want to be God. That's the problem. That's Satan's issue. He wanted to be God. And when we don't want people to tell us what to do, we're saying, hey, I am the master of my own castle. And nobody's going to tell what to do in my own castle. Shoot. That's the problem with humanity. If you're a king, you're trying to tell someone what to do, you're like, who do you think you are? I'm the king. I can tell you what to do. That's, that's my right. Jesus Christ is the king. He's trying to tell us what to do. The issue is Napoleon didn't die for this people. Jesus died for us. Napoleon's trying to get people to do what he needs them to do. So what does he do? He coerces them. He threatens them. He threatens their families, their land, their title. Jesus says, I'll die for you. Now, we do it, I ask. You're going to make the choice. Is he worthy? Next point, we need to rejoice in God's wisdom. What he's saying is true and wise. He's trying to reveal himself in the earth. He's given us breadcrumbs. The cross is the ultimate breadcrumb to let you know who God is. Today, everybody is celebrating Jesus' resurrection. It doesn't matter your context, your background. It doesn't matter the amount of pain you've been through. You have to answer yourself one question. Is he worth it? If you say no, then I got you. But if you say yes, then that changes everything. How you respond to his cross. My hope is you respond well. I had the, and I'm going to talk about this for probably about 10 years until next time I go back there, just so you know. So I had the pleasure of going to Israel with a couple of young men uh, this year. That's right, went there. Even though we faced rough conditions while we were there. We went to two places that to me stood out the most. Uh, one place was called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, right? 
And there was a line, right, to get in that place. It was like a long line. I mean, there were people all over the world, like people bumping. I mean, they're bumping and pushing each other to see Jesus is great, right? I mean, come on, it's like the, that's ironic. Like, we should all be, like, loving and holding hands, singing kumbaya as we're seeing the place where Jesus was resurrected. But you're trying to fight me because you want to get there first. So, like, we just, you said, forget it, okay? So, we, we didn't get to the grave, the actual place where the, his tomb was in the Holy Sepulcher. We went to the garden grave. But, but we went to the place where he was, his, uh, it was where he was crucified. And we had to go up these steps, right? And I don't know who made the stairs or how tall the people were. But we got to the very top of the stairs, and we had to make this turn, right? And there was like, it was like eight lines deep of people with only four-lane wall. It's like, two, we're too tight. So we had to like cut line and then go back over here to get in the line, right? So we skipped, and people were looking at us and like, you Americans, I'm like, that's right. That's right. <laughs> I was like, oh, you know, I had to throw down. Yes, right, American. <laughs> and then we, we were in the line trying to get to see his, his, uh, the place where the actual cross was. And, um, and there was a table there and all these, like, iconic pictures. And um, people were putting their hand down this hole. I mean, it was like people were fighting. And the hole, it looked like this. If I, I line, Jared, it was like this. And there was, like, underneath, like, a little hole. And so, like, there's lines, like, this man, and this is hyperbole. The Bible does this, so I can do it too. It's like a mile-long line, hyperbole. And so we're trying to get to this place, and finally, I said, forget it. I'm not going to get that. It's too, taking me too long. So I just walked around it. And so I was thinking about my mom and a couple of people. Actually, did you go in it? Okay, well, he's, he braided. I, I didn't have the, the, gir- the guts. Nevertheless, we got there, and I was looking as I walked by, and there's a little hole, and you could put your hand down the hole and touch something. And you touch what? A, a piece of stone. And the stone is supposed to be the stone that is on top of the actual rock where Jesus was crucified. So you're not even touching the rock. You're touching the piece of granite on top of the rock of the stone where Jesus was crucified. And I'm like, I don't know if I could do all that, right? I mean, I don't know. But as we were walking away, this guy says something amazing. And even if you don't think that's the actual rock, which I, uh, I honestly think, I think it is, we're walking away and said, look, it's an interesting thing right there. He said, there's a scripture that says about this cornerstone. Anybody remember that scripture? It's the one that the builders did what? Rejected. That's why I love this part. But this stone was actually like one of an quarry area of many stones. But it wasn't useful for anything, this stone this very stone is right there because it was like a brittle type of material, right? Brittle type of rock. So they couldn't use it. So they rejected that stone. It's the one stone that remained there. All the others were good for use. But that stone was rejected because it was too brittle. That stone is the stone where Jesus' cross was. Think about that. Did I get it right, Jared? The stone was rejected. It has become the cornerstone of our faith. Jesus Christ and his message is offensive. This is the part I never run from. This is why I don't think our church would just blow up to be 10,000 people. Because the cross of Christ is offensive. It's a scary message. It's frightening to think that your God would pay such a horrific price. But that's what it took. When we sin, we don't understand the consequences of our action on our family, on our friends, on our loved ones. 
But understand it was bad enough that God had to die so that you can have an opportunity to live. Jesus Christ has been rejected by many. You don't reject him today. Let's pray. Father God, I don't even know if I even finished the sermon, but I stopped right there. I ask you, Lord God, to move by your spirit this morning. You're doing great things throughout the earth, Lord. We're thankful, Father God, for you being just who you are. Lord, sometimes it looks like you're, you're not there. Sometimes it seems like you're not responsible. Sometimes it seems like you don't care about us. It seems like we're left alone. Sometimes we're just, we're just lonely. But you gave us this promise. That you loved us. That you make a way for us. For those who trust you. So Lord, move today in people's hearts. People who've been hurt by this world. By politics, by religion, by race, by culture. By the Minnesota Vikings keep losing. We ask you, Lord God, strengthen our hearts. We've been disappointed so many times by our loved ones. We've disappointed so many people ourselves, Lord. We're not living up to our own expectations, Father God. We feel guilty. We just feel like it's sometimes it's not worth going forward. But your cross changes all that. Your cross meets us right there, Lord, in our failures. And it gives us hope to keep going forward. Lord God, we need your grace this morning, your mercy, your love. We know the cross is true, Lord God. Help us in our unbelief to see everything you want us to see. Lord God, you control the hearts of kings. Control of ours this morning. This has been a presentation of Endurance Church. For more about the ministry, head to endurancechurch.org. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash endurancechurch and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash endurancechurch.tv. Remember to live well and finish strong. All-consuming fire.